Just a setup we're going to talk about today, uh, Joshua chapter 18, verse 1. Now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at, how do you say that next word? Joshua 18, verse 1. The whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at, how many think it's pronounced like Shiloh? How many think that that's an American thing and uh, maybe the Jews pronounce it a little bit differently? (laughs) You go to Israel and you find out everything you've always thought as a kid on how to pronounce names is completely wrong. Like the guy who kills uh, Goliath with the slingshot, we would say his name is David, right? You go to Israel and you get your first tour guide and they start talking about David. Like, who's David? And then you finally figure out, talking about David, King David. Moses, right? Moses, uh, name coming out of Egypt. Uh, that's not the way they pronounce Moses, right? They say Moshe. And uh, even this book, we call it Joshua. It's really Yeshua. It's by the way, the actual name the Lord Jesus Christ would have been walking around with, they would have called him Yeshua. You know, uh, Jesus is a Greek version of that. Um, and nothing wrong with using the name Jesus, by the way. But in Hebrew, it's Yeshua or Joshua. Uh, so in Israel, they don't pronounce that word Shiloh, they pronounce it Shiloh, but they're wrong, we're right. So uh, the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Shiloh today, in fact, I'm going to show you a lot of Shiloh today, what it looks like today. Um, But just to introduce myself a little bit to you, I'm with the ministry called Believers Stewardship Services Incorporated, and that's only because we couldn't find another name that had more syllables. Uh, So, uh, but we uh, help Christians with uh, state planning, plan giving, wealth management, things like that. We were birthed out of Emmaus Bible College. We're no longer part of Emmaus Bible College, but uh, anyway, we appreciate your prayers for our ministry. We've, uh, ministry has grown like crazy. More recently, uh, we've expanded into helping assemblies and assembly-related ministries with governance matters, and part of that was birthed out of the fact that a few years back, there was a decision by the Supreme Court called the Obergefell decision, in which uh, the United States legalized same-sex marriages, and we started to see a slew of uh, lawsuits brought against uh, evangelical churches, and uh, where people wanted to uh, have same-sex marriages in those churches, and obviously we don't think that's a good testimony before the Lord. Uh, We've actually seen one assembly uh, north of the border that was potentially uh, uh, brought into legal action because they wouldn't do that. It hasn't hit down here, but anyway, we help with things like that. So I would appreciate your prayers uh, as we support the assemblies. Uh, That's not what I'm here to talk to you about. (laughs) Uh, I also want to tell you a little bit about another ministry I'm involved with. Uh, it's called School Ministries. I won't spend too much time on this, but I'm a chairman of the board of School Ministries. You've probably never heard of School Ministries. Who's heard of School Ministries? Good. A couple of really fine Christians, obviously stellar Christians in the back, have heard of the ministry. The rest of you, I don't know. Um, but School Ministries is the national organization that supports what's called Release Time Bible Education. And whenever I say release time Bible education, people think we're a prison ministry. No, we're not engaging in the 
minist- working with prisoners, uh, though that's a fine ministry. Uh, what we do work with is public school children. Uh, you may not realize this, but the U.S. Supreme Court has upheld that it is perfectly acceptable for churches, synagogues, mosques, uh, but it's the evangelicals who largely have taken advantage of this, uh, that we are allowed to offer to public school children during the school day Bible teaching. Uh, not only are we allowed to do it, um, it has been defended. There's a couple of things you've got to make sure that you do, though. You must make sure you have parental or guardian consent. Uh, you must not be a burden upon the local school system. And it ideally means you're taking the kids off campus to the local evangelical church where you teach in the Bible. You say, well, how do you get them off campus? There's these little things called the school bus industry where they will happily, they've got their bus drivers twiddling their thumbs during the day. They will happily go buy them for 40 bucks, rent them for 40 bucks a week. The bus dri- school bus company picks the kids up, drops them off at your chapel, brings them back to the, the local school. We're in, get a load of this, 319 public schools. There are 350,000 public school kids going through our programs. And we support 41,000 of those. We're the national organization that supports the whole thing. And believe it or not, it's an assembly organization. And you've never heard of it. Um, Not all assembly, but uh, heavily assembly influenced. Uh, And I'll tell you one little anecdote, and I'm trying to focus your prayers in case you haven't figured this out. Um, I was in Los Angeles uh, uh, there's four states that have said, can you imagine this? There are four states that have said, um, we'll actually let you teach the Bible and it can apply towards their high school diploma. And uh, Ohio, North Carolina, South Carolina, uh, we're right up now and with Tennessee and Alabama are considering it and California. And uh, what happened with us, and you want to be praying about these things, is we uh, pushed with the local uh, meeting out there to get into the Oakland school system uh, back in the fall. And uh, one program was allowed to be started in Oakland. And uh, we talk about hostility. Incidentally, when we approach the local school, we're never adversarial. We want to work with them. We'll even, if they get sued, we're going to pick it up for them. We'll, we'll defend them in court. We're 96 and 1, by the way, in court. We lost one lawsuit out of 97. We should have lost the lawsuit out of 97, by the way. It was in Pittsburgh. We were picking the kids up in old ratty buses that didn't have seatbelts. Uh, we don't do that. So, uh, so we lost one. But uh, in Oakland, the school system was very uh, hesitant towards us uh, being in their schools. They thought they were going to get all these slew of lawsuits from the uh, freedom from religion crowd and, and the like. Uh, we're trying to get the gospel in there and, and um, teach the Bible. Do you know what Oakland was doing? They were tracking the detention rate of the students. Put a bunch of kids, signed up for the class, high detention rate, and they watched over the weeks as the detention rate dropped just by attending Bible study for one hour a week. By the end of the semester, last semester, uh, I was going out there to meet with California officials. I'm the chairman of the board, and you you go out there and you're nervous. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an attorney. I have a flock of them that are associated with us, but we didn't want to go in a combative way. I'm sitting down with a representative of the city of Los Angeles, and we were in seven schools in Los Angeles, and I thought I was getting ready for a fight. You know what the 
lady said to me, you're in seven of our schools. Would you like to be in another 18? So I'm just telling you, you may not think it as you watch the media, as you watch CNN or Fox News and see a general decline of the culture, and the culture is declining. But I'll just leave you with this thought. The scripture says that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. We're on the offensive, lest you forget. So um, please be in prayer about this. We've just started a huge initiative with Everyday Publications. That's an assembly publication house uh, north of the border. Brian Crutney, one of the elders in one of the meetings in St. Catharines, he's writing curriculum. The curriculum he writes will be the curriculum that's used potentially by tens of thousands, uh, by hundreds of schools in reaching tens of thousands of kids for Christ. So please be in prayer for this ministry. And as you might imagine, we've got a burden we've got to meet there. So I'm not here to talk to you about that either. I am going to talk to you a little bit about this other ministry I'm the chairman of the board for, and that's called Associates for Biblical Research, and it's all about Shiloh, or as we say, Shiloh. Uh, you've never, anybody ever heard of Associates for Biblical Research? Good. Two of you. Three of you. All right. Well, we're going to look to the Lord in a word of prayer, start our time off with, and I'm going to tell you about the group that runs the largest archaeological digs in the world. This is it. And it's another one of your organizations that you've probably never heard of. It's run by the assemblies. So uh, let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for that truth that the gates of hell will not prevail against us, against the gospel, against the Lord Jesus Christ, and against his kingdom, against his people. Father, we pray that you'd give us wisdom now as we look at this interesting archaeological dig that is going on in Shiloh, largest dig in the world past few, uh, couple of years will be the largest dig in the world this year, as you already know, Father. Uh, and we just pray and ask that you give us understanding uh, and just how overwhelming the evidence is for the reliability of your Scripture. Uh, so, Father, we lift up our time with you this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, uh, yeah, ABR goes back more than uh, 50 years it was started in 1967 by an archaeologist by the name of, believe it or not, David Livingston. And uh, he was flying on a plane to Israel, and he was going on a dig, and he just happened to get in a... I don't know if he got in a conversation with the uh, person or he was eavesdropping on a conversation, but he heard two Israeli teachers talk about how, really, you, you go back too much further in the Old Testament, there's no evidence for any of the things associated with... Uh, uh, you know, the conquest of the land. And at the time, the, the Six-Day War was going on in, in 67. It was right around that time. And these Israeli teachers were saying, you know, uh, um, it would be nice if there was archaeological evidence, if there was evidence to show that Israel had conquered the land like it says in the book of Joshua and Judges. And he jumped out of his skin because he's like, there's tons of evidence. How do they not know? And he gave rise to this thing called Associates for Biblical Research, and uh, here we are going on strong 50-plus years later, uh, so I'm chairman of this thing. Uh, there are different types of apologetic organizations. You know what apologetics is? Trying to give a, a you know, the Second Peter 3 says, be ready to give a defense and a reason for the hope that is within you. Second Peter or First Peter? One of the Peters. First Peter? Be ready to give a defense and a reason for the hope that is within you. And uh, the word for defense there is apologia or apologia in Greek. It means to defend, to give reasons why you believe what you believe. Uh, that's a scriptural command. 
when Peter writes, be ready to give a defense and give a reason for the hope that is within you, you must be able to do that. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. We have to be able to defend our faith as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And incidentally, that makes perfect sense to me. Think about what you are saying, the preposterous thing from the world's standpoint that you are saying. You are saying that there is no other way for a person to have eternal life other than by putting your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That by Christ's death on the cross, he satisfies a righteous God's demands to punish sin. That being a good Muslim and facing Mecca five times a day, or going off and saying your confession, or uh, being a good Hindu, that all of that counts for absolutely nothing as far as your eternal standing goes. The only thing that does count, the commodity of faith, the commodity of Scripture, the way that salvation is bought, is by Christ's death on the cross, and you must respond by believing that there's no other way you could be made right for God, uh, right with God, There's no action you could do to make yourself right with God. That's why Jesus Christ had to do it on your behalf. He has to be God so that he can pay the eternal price that your sins merit, and yet he must be a human being because he has to be related to us so he can represent us. You're now going out into the world, if you're a born-again believer, and you're telling the world, you can't be saved lest you believe these things. They have a right to say to you, how do you know that's true? And you say, well, I know it because it's in God's Word. And they say to you, how do you know that's true? You have to be able to give reasons for why you believe what you believe. So uh, there are different types of apologetic organizations out there. Uh, Some give a philosophical defense of the faith. So I was listening to Ravi Zacharias on the way in here. You know, uh, he's a philosopher. He's an apologist. He gives a philosophical defense for the faith, and he does a wonderful job. Before that, there was Francis Schaeffer. You know, if you grew up when I grew up, you grew up on Francis Schaeffer. Uh, then there's people who give, um, they're great at advocating the evidence that's found by others to defend the faith. Uh, answers in Genesis. Somebody I just heard this morning was saying they were out at the art, art, art exhibit or, or uh, the uh, answers in Genesis. Who was that this morning? I thought I heard somebody say that this morning. They're just out there this week. Um, Answers in Genesis is a great advocacy group. They take the findings of others and they put it forth and show there's lots of evidence for the Bible and it's being reliable. That's not this organization. This organization isn't taking the findings of others and putting it out there. They do their own research. We have archaeologists in the field. If you've heard of the Institute for Creation Research, again, they got the name research in the name, That means they do their own original research. They have their own geologists, their own biologists. Uh, You had to guess, how many archaeological digs do you think are going on in Israel in the course of a given year? It's about a hundred. And only about a half a dozen or so are year-round activities. Uh, The archaeological field is very much a seasonal aspiration. And do you know why that is? It has everything to do with the United States and our students because the United States has lots of high school students and college students that like to go on archaeological digs. And from an archaeological society standpoint, they're wonderful because they're free labor. Not only do they want to go on your dig, they'll pay you to go on your dig. 
It's nice. Same thing with the British and the Canadians and the Germans. Their kids like to go on archaeological digs. So one of those kids, they can't go in the middle of February, can they? But they can go in the middle of June. So uh, about most digs will run over the summer season. A few will run over the winter season. We also run a little bit over the winter season because Christmas time is another student break. And uh, so uh, about four to six will run year long. Uh, And who do you think runs most of these digs? They're all, or almost all of them, are run by the Americans and the Brits and our universities and the Germans. And, and the Israelis will oversee the digs. Uh, they'll certainly run a few of their own, but uh, it's the Americans who put all the money into these things. And this field is exploding. Uh, see, science, as it gets more sophisticated, as technology gets more sophisticated, it doesn't disprove this book proves this book. It does the exact opposite. Uh, This was just announced a week ago today, right about this time, a week ago today. This is a dig that is in the city of David, which is, if you know Jerusalem, you go Temple Mount and you start working your way south of the Temple Mount. There's this thing called the Milo and King David's Palace. It's an archaeological dig going on there all the time. It's one of the few that is happening all the time. Uh, down in the city of David, they came across an enormous structure several months back. We knew about this. It hadn't been released to the press. Uh, And it was a structure that seemed to be associated with the kings of Judah, like a a governmental headquarters, and it had been destroyed in 586 B.C. What's happening in 586 B.C.? Babylonians are sacking Jerusalem. And as far as we can tell, as far as the archaeologists who are running, this is being run by Jerusalem University, Um, Israeli Antiquities Division, as far as we can tell, it has never been unearthed since 586 B.C. And that's like a goldmine for us. And so that was a big discovery, and that took place last summer. And we knew there had been a scarab found, and uh, or the seal, I should say, and uh, but we didn't know the findings of it. And uh, they just revealed last week that the seal, this is the seal that was found. They released a picture of it. And if you go to 2 Kings 23, I'll tell you why the seal is significant from our standpoint. Don't worry, we'll get back to Shiloh. I've got two sessions with you, so I've got you now and after lunch. So 2 Kings 23, verse 11. This is during the time of Josiah. Uh, Josiah is cleaning out around 640 B.C. or so. He's cleaning out um, all the pagan worship that is uh, going on in and around the temple. Uh, The Jews have gotten so wicked. The kingdom of Judah has gotten so wicked. But in verse 11 it says, Then he removed, uh, verse 10, He defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, uh, that no man might make his son or daughter pass through the fire to Molech, uh, the children of Israel had gotten so vile, children, the Jewish people had gotten so vile, they're actually sacrificing their sons and daughters at a young age to this god, Molech, burn them alive. Uh, verse 11, then he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of the Lord, the entrance of the temple. By the chamber of Nathan Melech, the officer who was in the court, and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. Imagine that. Uh, 
temple worship had gotten so polluted that the temple to the Lord God, by the time Josiah comes on the scene, actually had pagan chariots in it dedicated to the sun and, and pagan idols in it, and he starts to purge it. That name, Nathan Melech, there in verse 11, is who the seal is referring to. Uh, the seal has got inscribed on it um, the name, uh, the servant of the king, uh, Nathan Melech. And uh, where it was found, that's what that's saying there in Hebrew. We can kind of figure out Nathan Melech. I don't read Hebrew, but uh, somebody on my staff does. But, uh, um, but that's talking about Nathan Melech. The seal is found in a house, and it's in a set of debris that dates from the late 600s, early, yeah, early 500s B.C., and we're pretty sure that is the Nathan Melech that's mentioned right here. Now, what is a seal? A seal, you want to think of it like back in the ancient days. Remember Judah has a seal he gives to Tamar, gives her a seal? A seal is basically something that has your name on it. It often has your profession. It often has the name of your father. And it can, in certain instances, even have the name of the king that's ruling. Um, there's almost always two seals. There's one that you have, and then there's one that's given to the government. So let's say I'm going to sell land to the Hagen family here. Uh, we can't electronically engage in a transfer. We're going to write up a scroll. Typically, the scroll is going to have on the inside uh, the property and the terms of the, the property, and then we're going to seal it with five seals, and then on the outside are going to be the returns for me to buy it back at some point if I ever want to. It's what's showing up in Revelation 5, by the way. It's a redemption scroll. Um, when that contract is sealed, we're going to take a seal that's unique to me. It's got my name, my father's name, and some kind of unique decorative element on it. There's going to be an exact copy that's given to the government. I'm going to take my seal, and then let's say it's wax. I'm going to seal the scroll with my seal. Then when the Hagen family goes down to the governmental headquarters, and they say, I just bought Sullivan's land, they're going to say, all right, show us the document. They're then going to look up their seal that they have on file for me, and they're going to look at the scroll, and they're going to say, it's your property now. That's the way they did it back then. They kept a copy of these seals for their population, particularly their governmental officials, in this area. It's a gold mine for us. Um, this is not the first building we found a part of this complex. Uh, we first uncovered a building back in 2006. It was an Israeli archaeologist by the name of Alat Mazar. It's a lady. And we have found seals related to King Hezekiah. Many people mentioned in the book of Jeremiah. And last December, we found the seal, believe it or not, to Isaiah the prophet. So, this stuff's happening all the time. I can tell you for certainty, there is stuff in the pipeline right now that we're just waiting for peer review to complete on. When you find something, uh, who owns the property when you find it? Does Israel own it or do we own it? Israel owns everything. But who owns the rights to the research? We do or in this case, uh, Hebrew University in Jerusalem, uh, they own the right to the research. Uh, what you do is you make an assertion as to what you think this is, uh, and then you put it out for peer review. And people will, other universities, it could be Yale University, it could be Associates for Biblical Research, it could be uh, Cambridge, it could be other uh, antiquities authorities, it could be the New York Museum of Natural uh, History. Uh, you put it out for peer review, and then people look it over and say, oh, it makes sense to me. Or they'll say, you've missed something, and they'll point it out. But once a consensus begins to build, then you'll release it for publication, which is what 
took place here. It's pretty much uniform. This is the Nathan Malek that's mentioned here. Makes all the sense in the world. Um, it was found a week ago. Actually, it was probably found last summer, but they released it a week ago. So the field of Bible archaeology is exploding. Uh, see if I actually get... I've got 41 slides, and I'm on slide three. This is a disaster. Um, this set of slabs was found back in 1905. It was found in the Sinai Peninsula by Hilda and William Flinders Petrie. Uh, they were archaeologists that were doing work in the Sinai Peninsula at the turn of the last century. By the way, the Petries were not the reason we have a Petri dish, um, but they're pretty hot-shotty archaeologists who, were, by the way, were in an assembly up in Scotland. Um, You'd be surprised how much the assemblies have had an influence on archaeology. The entire field of archaeology, incidentally, is owing to Bible teachers. Did you know that? This is our field. And so often, many of the fields that a kid might study in uh, college are owing to some Bible-believing Christian. Uh, And archaeology is a great case in point. Uh, Back in the 1830s, the Ottoman Turkish Empire... Uh, was uh, trying to figure out a way to make some money. And they decided a great way to make money would be to open up the Holy Land to British tourists, to American tourists. So they decided to open it up. Made it very easy for Brits and Americans and Canadians, even though Canada didn't exist at the point, um, Brits and Americans to come over to Israel. Gave them easy access. So all of a sudden, here Britain and, and uh, America starts to have access to the Holy Land. But guess what happens when you get to the Holy Land? There's no sign that says, Hatsor is right here. There's no sign that says, Jesus was uh, fed the 5,000 right here. Those things weren't kept. And to the extent that there were places, Byzantine churches that were largely built on spots where key events took place, Muslims destroyed half the thing when they took control of the land back around the turn of the millennia. So Bible teachers go over there and they literally invent the field of archaeology, trying to figure out where things were. Uh, And uh, uh, it's a great thing. If you ever go to the about.com sites and they give you the abouts, uh, you know, generic information on the background of different fields of science or math, uh, you look up archaeology, it'll say right off the bat, the entire field of archaeology is owing to Bible teachers, trying to figure out where things were. Uh, anyway, I've digressed here, but um, these were found four year, uh, 115 years ago, 114 years ago during, the, during a dig in the Sinai Peninsula. Now, you may not see this here, but we knew we had a problem when we found this because we knew there was some kind of really old version of Hebrew written on this slab, kind of a, what we would call, come to be called Paleo-Hebrew, really ancient writing. Now, a little background about where they were digging. Uh, They were digging in a quarry area that they were able to establish as being associated with the tribe of Dan. There seemed to have been people from the clan of Dan who were slaves in Egypt. That's what they were able to piece together, but they couldn't quite make out the writing on the thing. And so for 100 plus years, this thing was sitting in the British Museum, and uh, People talked about, if we could ever figure out this language, it may open up why there seems to be this dearth of evidence as it relates to the slavery of the Israelis in Egypt. Uh, 
we eventually, and I say eventually, I think it was just two years ago, uh, a linguistic expert by the name of Doug Petrovich, he's a leading expert in the field of Paleo-Hebrew, uh, he finally was able to translate this based off of other slabs we found, and this is what he concluded. Uh, one of the slabs uh, was translated, the one having been elevated is weary to forget, and apparently his name was the overseer of minerals, Ahisamach. Uh, so as we pieced the different slabs together, we realized that the one who was in charge of the quarry was a slave from the tribe of Dan, whose name seemed to be Ahisamach. That was just translated two years ago. It was found in 1905. Now, has anybody ever heard the name Ahisamach? Not exactly a really ready name that comes off the mind when you think of the Bible. But he's mentioned in the Bible. Get a load of this. This is Exodus 31, 3 through 7. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying... Now, this is when they're going to build the, ta the uh, tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God and wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. So one of the people who's tasked with building the Ark, and really when we say tasked, he's overseeing it, and the tabernacle, is Bezalel, the son of Uri. And then there's a second fellow. And I, indeed I, have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach. Oh, and what tribe is he from? Of the tribe of Dan. And I've put wisdom in the hearts of all who are gifted artisans, that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furniture of the tabernacle." Based off of pottery that was found and some really difficult tests that were revisited back in, 19, uh, in 2017, we believe that this inscription was made right around 1480 B.C. The Exodus, the departure from Egypt, occurs in 1446 B.C. Ahisamach was the guy in charge of the dig. It makes sense and he's in charge of the minerals, he's in charge. It makes sense that probably this sophisticated artisan, he's passing the information on to his son, and his son is like a tradesman, follows in his father's footsteps. And that's why he's named by the Lord, along with uh, Bezalel. We've, never, we've not found evidence of Uri yet. We may never. But see, this is like what, a couple of verses. One verse related to the guy who's in Josiah's court. And a couple of verses related to this. From an archaeological standpoint and from a standpoint of supporting the Scripture, this is tremendous evidence. And you know why it's tremendous evidence? Because it's obscure. Even in the obscure stuff, we've got evidence showing your Bible is historically accurate. So uh, let's talk about Shiloh. As I've got 10 minutes left, uh, we may, right at noon, break this, and we're going to show a video so you get a little picture of this thing. Um, but this is Shiloh. Uh, this is what it looks like from the air. That's, uh, you're in the middle of the West Bank, by the way. Uh, that UFO-like looking like structure there in the middle is the visitor's center. Uh, and the, where we were digging is down here. This is where all the digging is going on 
There's the visitor center. It's the most sophisticated visitor center, one of the most sophisticated visitor centers uh, in Israel. When you go in, you've got a room that gives you 270 degrees view of Shiloh. And the Israelis have put money into this thing where you're sitting down in this auditorium and you look out and through CGI, they build the tabernacle right in front of you and you think you're looking at the real thing. It's the most sophisticated stuff. And the Israelis have had a problem. And uh, it's part of the reason why my guys were so anxious to get into this dig. We've just been there two seasons now. Nobody's been allowed to dig here really since 1984. Uh, This was a thorn in the side of the Israelis because uh, of the history of the digs here. The first people to dig here uh, were the Danes, people from Denmark. They dug from 1920, they dug in 1926, 1932, and again in 1963. When they went through the site, they said, you know, we're not finding any evidence of middle to late bronze Israelite culture. Oh well. You say, well, I don't know what that means. Middle to late bronze is the book of Judges. It's the book of Joshua. It's that time frame. That was a bit of a problem for the Israelis because this is the center of cultic worship for Israel. By cultic in archaeological terms, we don't mean the occult. We mean animal sacrifice. This was the center of Israelite worship for 300 years. And for there to be no evidence, no evidence that Israel was there, that's a problem. So in uh, 1981, an Israeli archaeologist was given permission to dig there by the name of Israel Finkelstein. It's a Jewish name, Israel Finkelstein. He takes a team and he digs for four years, 1981 to 1984. And he goes through the site and he says, there's a little bit of evidence that the Jews were here, but nothing like you would expect from what the Bible says. Well, the Bible's wrong. Israel Finkelstein says. The Israeli Antiquities Division is like, oh, what a nightmare this is. We're in the midst of these negotiations with the, the uh, Palestinians. We're trying to make the case. The Intifada is just a few years away from starting. We're trying to make a case that we've been here all along. And our, you know, this is the second most important city in the Old Testament, in case you don't know this. Jerusalem's first. This is second. This is the center of Israeli worship for 300 years. All the judges takes place during this period of time. Israel shuts it down. They say, no more digs here. So when you go to this uh, visitor center, because there's no evidence of an Israeli worship or Israel presence, they would show you during their video and their CGI presentation, and what they'll say is, well, at a certain point, the ark was lost to the Philistines, and the Philistines came up, and they destroyed any semblance of Israel presence uh, in uh, Israel, and they're messing up their chronology of how the Old Testament's working, Um, but they did that because they were trying to explain why it is there's no evidence or no serious evidence that Israel was there. So, uh, and that's what you'll go see to this day if you sit in that video and you watch it, something that's not lines up with Scripture, but they're trying to explain why there is no Israel presence there. Now, put that aside for a second, I'll tell you a little story about ABR, because ABR is loved by the Israeli Antiquities Division. And you know why we're loved? Um, we dug for 17 years at a place called Kerbet El Nisya. We were trying to find the city of Ai. Uh, 
we were convinced that a place in Israel called Kerbet El Nisia was the city of Ai. You know the city of Ai? It's the first place they go to after Jericho. They conquer Jericho. The walls come down. They take Jericho. Incidentally, we had a lot of credibility with Israel because we became the definitive experts on Jericho. We proved that the walls collapsed. We proved that the city was conquered in 1406 B.C., right around that time frame, because we found a burn layer. And the Bible says Jericho was burned with fire, Hatzor was burned with fire, and Ai was burned with fire. There's only three cities that were burned with fire during the conquest under Joshua. All the other cities were inhabited. Uh, so we found a burn layer. I could take you to this day and show you a massive burn layer. It's carbon dated right around 1400 years before Christ, just like the Bible says. Exodus occurs in 1446 B.C. They're wandering in the wilderness how many years? Forty. They conquer Jericho about 1406 B.C. And we've got a burn layer about 1406 B.C. All the things that the scripture talks about, the way the walls collapsed, that they didn't steal the grain. We have found tons of jars filled with grain, and grain you can date, and it dates to about 1,400 years before Christ. Uh, just like the Bible says. So we started getting credibility with the Israelis because we were doing this, really, my guys were doing this spectacular research long before I got involved. The walls, the way they caved in, it's almost like they created a ramp going up the thing. We go off to Kerbet El Nisya, convinced this is the city of Ai. It's close by. It's where they would have gone to next. We dig there for 17 years. At the end of 17 years, we produce a report. You know what we found? There's no significance whatsoever to this place we've been digging at for the past 17 years. Millions of dollars spent in this thing. And there was nothing significant biblically about it whatsoever. So we produced this report. We're like, we're going to be laughing stock of the archaeological community. You know what the Israelis thought? Imagine that, an archaeological society that's honest. So they said to us, next time you want to start a dig, you come to us, we'll approve it, wherever. So we knew we couldn't try for the Temple Mount, <laughs> but we wanted this spot because we knew this was a thorn in Israel's side. And frankly, it was a dagger pointed at the historicity of the Bible. We'd already started digging in Kerbet el Makader. Kerbet el Makader, after 17 years of digging there, guess what we found? That's Ai. We've now definitively proven that's the city of Ai. We've also found the city of Ephraim, which is mentioned in John, uh, the last place Jesus went to before he goes to Jerusalem, the city of Ephraim. Um, uh, we found that as well. So the Lord has blessed us mightily. So the Israelis said to us, whenever you want to go start another dig, come to us, we'll, we'll get it approved. We submitted a, a, a request to dig at the city of Shiloh. One hour later, it was approved. They kept their word. Countless people had requested to dig here. But we go, we get, hour later, we get the approval. And we start digging there two years ago. Um, Show you where this thing is. Got three minutes here. Uh, so you see where Jerusalem is. If you go straight north, you see Givat Zeviv. You see Jericho in green. You see Ramallah in green. Your bus every day goes by Ramallah when you're going out to the dig. Bet El Ofra, and then you see Shiloh due north. That's where Shiloh is. Uh, you are driving through the West Bank. Uh, there's the uh, security fence that's around Ramallah, which for all intents and purposes is the capital of the Palestinian territory. Uh, they have interesting artwork on their walls. There's a picture of a woman. Uh, I believe her name was Layla Khalid. Uh, and I don't know if you can see what she's holding. Does anybody see what she's holding there? She's holding an AK-47. Uh, she went into an Israeli school and shot up a bunch of kids. 
and she's regarded by them as a hero, not so much by the Israelis. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think ABR gets along well with the Palestinians? Who do you think we get along with better, the Palestinians or the Israelis? We get along with both of them wonderfully well. We don't, we're not out to make anybody our enemies. Uh, I'll tell you this. We usually end up staying in Arab hotels. Our bus drivers are always Arabs. The people who feed us on the dig are Arabs from Ramallah. By the way, you'd rather have their food than the kosher stuff. I mean, I want pizza with cheese on it and, and other things on it, right? And uh, they take good care of us. So we've got a really good relationship with the Palestinians. We've got a really good relationship with the Israelis. Uh, the people we hire typically are, are, are Arabs. But I'll tell you, the Israelis are into what we're doing. This is the verse we read before. The whole assembly of the Israelites gathered at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of meeting there. The country was brought under their control. Um, this is not your father's archaeological dig. Uh, if I tell you that we rent time on U.S. Air Force satellites to thermal image the area, that we have drones with tens of thousands of dollars on equipment that fly over the site and image it every morning and every evening, that we have laboratories set up on site, we have wet sifting stations, we take the stuff that we find, and in conjunction with the Israelis, we send it to the most sophisticated labs in the world, you can begin to understand why what we found was a little different than what was being found in 1921 or 1984. They missed so much. They left the stuff that they considered debris and put it on the side, and we went back through it all. They missed so much, but it's not their fault. They didn't have an agenda. They just didn't have this thing. They didn't have the technology that we do. Wait till you see what we found. The, uh, the dig, you can see we have people as young as 14 and people as old as 84 on the dig. And uh, I think we had 400 digging this past summer. Uh, so it's a, it's a neat thing. Uh, last little anecdote. Um, we're often encouraging high schoolers, and particularly high school girls, to come on our digs. I don't know how old you guys are, but you know why we encourage high school girls to come on our digs? They have got an eye to find things like you wouldn't believe. I think five of the last seven years, a high school girl or a college girl found the most important thing that we found on the site. And often, and we say this is the Holy Spirit as a sense of humor, if I can say that reverently. This is no joke. I think five of the last seven years, a girl, uh, one of the high school or college girls found something. And there's some overlap, but five of the last seven years as well, the most important thing was found the last hour of the last day of the dig season. It's almost like he's saying, come on back next year. So uh, let's look to the Lord. We'll give thanks for the food, or is that done downstairs? We'll give thanks downstairs. Okay, well, let me close this in a word of prayer, and um, we'll uh, wrap this all up. And thank you so much for the extra 10 minutes. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for... Uh, the gospel and the scripture. Father, we have a sure word of testimony in the Bible. Uh, archaeology is proving what is already the case, Father, that your Bible is trustworthy. Father, we think of uh, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ when he was speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. 
Father, we realize the Bible is ultimately his story. It's the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's forever pointing us to that one whose name has been given under heaven. And it is the only name by which men, women, boys, and girls can be saved. So, Father, we thank you for these things. Lift them up in Christ's name. Amen.